Hello, welcome to Book Chat. I'm Carl Hallecker, and our guest today is Thomas H. Keels, and he is the author of a fascinating book called Forgotten Philadelphia, Lost Architecture of the Quaker City. Thomas Keels is a local writer and historian and the co-author of Philadelphia Graveyards and Cemeteries and co-author of Chestnut Hill. Tom, welcome to Book Chat. Thank you. Uh, Tom, your title, Forgotten Philadelphia. Uh, what, what is Forgotten Philadelphia and why the studying it and recreating it? What does that tell us about the city? Well, it's called Forgotten Philadelphia because it looks at about 175 structures, mostly buildings, but also cemeteries, gas works, tunnels, bridges that are no longer in existence. Uh, they're lost architecture, demolished or lost for one reason or another. Uh, and basically what it teaches us is patterns in Philadelphia's growth and how it affected the architecture. Buildings that were landmarks in one generation for one reason or another became obsolete or unnecessary and were torn down often only a few years after they were built. This book looks at how Philadelphia's history influenced this and what caused these landmarks to become landfill. And it's just interesting how much of our history is, is tied up with the architecture. Very much so. I mean, architecture is a wonderful representation of what's going on in a society. And with Philadelphia, you see really how the buildings represent the phenomenal growth of the city from maybe 5,000 people in 1700 to about 30,000 people within the next century. And then by 1900, of course, it was uh, over 1.5 million. It uh, had one of the highest growth rates of any metropolis well into the 20th century. And of course, that with that incredible growth outward and upward, mm -hmm. that meant that a lot of buildings had to be destroyed to make room for, uh, for the growth. Right. Uh, how many build buildings do you discuss in your book, and why did you decide to include these among the many that you could have? Well, as I said, there are about 175, mm -hmm. and I used a number of different criteria that are sort of very loosely adapted from the guidelines for the National Register of Historic Buildings. Um, first and foremost, a lot of the buildings in here really are architectural masterpieces. You have things like Benjamin Latrobe's Bank of Pennsylvania, the first Greek revival structure built in the United States. You have uh, buildings by Frank Furness, like the Rodef Shalom Synagogue on North Broad Street and his Guaranteed Trust Company. So there are some incredible landmarks that have just disappeared. Not all of them are landmarks, however. Um, a number of them were fairly humble buildings, but they really contributed to the social um, or political life of the city. Uh, for instance, I don't know if you ever went to Palumbo's in South Philadelphia, but uh, that was basically a rabbit's warren of uh, brownstones that were cobbled together into several nightclubs and restaurants by the Palumbo family. Mm -hmm. But if you lived in South Philadelphia during the 20th century, that is where every major event was celebrated. So it was the social center of South Philly during that time, but it was also the political center. Frank Palumbo mm -hmm. was a very savvy man, right. and he helped launch the careers of many politicians, including Frank Rizzo. Interesting. Um, Maybe tied into this, too, you, you begin your book with an interesting uh, discussion about the Broad Street Station. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, there were political ramifications to the, the station, uh, its existence, but uh, maybe you can tell us about that, but also why, of all the things you could have talked about that, you, you brought that out almost as a, a metaphor for everything you're talking about. The Broad Street Station was, well, to step back a little bit, it was the Pennsylvania Railroad's 
primary terminal in Center City, Philadelphia, when the railroad was the largest, wealthiest corporation in America. As a matter of fact, people in Philadelphia just called it the railroad. Um, this was a huge Victorian pile that stood on, I guess, West Penn Square um, between Filbert and Market Street, roughly where Dilworth Plaza is today. It was built in the 1880s and 1890s, and it represented the power and the presence of the railroad in Philadelphia society. That was what struck me because it was such a symbolically laden building. Um, I was very struck by the symbolic value that it held. It represented the power of the railroad, not just the Pennsylvania Railroad, but railroads in general during 19th century America. It represented the city's move from the Delaware River west toward Penn Square, it was being built at the same time that City Hall was being built, so suddenly that was the new power center of the town. And it represented Philadelphia's presence as a major transportation hub and also as a major economic power. This was really a symbol of <clears throat> how important the city was financially, even though it had fallen behind New York. Now, that was in the 1880s and 1890s, but that changed very quickly. Um, only, a, well, a year before the station was finished, you had the White City at the Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893. This was um, a group of architects, no Philadelphia architects, who suddenly created this beautiful Beaux-Arts neoclassical city on the banks of Lake Michigan. And suddenly everything had to be white, gleaming marble. Well, you had Broad Street Station, which was this huge, terracotta red brick pile with all of this statuary on it and suddenly it looked incredibly old-fashioned and it seemed to represent the fact that philadelphia itself was becoming very conservative and re reactionary um, by the 1920s uh, this the railroad was already making plans with the city to tear down the station put up something new in its place and what's more to tear down the chinese wall the chinese wall was the elevated viaduct that ran trains in from the West Philadelphia Depot 2,000 feet from the Schuylkill River into the 16th Street entrance to the station. It was several hundred feet wide. You had 10 train tracks on it. Mm -hmm. So um, the entire city was bisected by this huge wall that, of course, had trains going on it day and night, spewing out coal dust and mm -hmm. embers and things, um, and covering 18 acres of real estate. Well, you had... Um, the Depression. You had World War II, so you couldn't really do anything with it. But as soon as the economy recovered in the 1950s, people were desperate to tear it down and to put up what is now Penn Center. Very good. So so what year was it uh, uh, torn down? Then? In 1952. And, and, and it's funny, if I could just you know say sure. something else. There was a lot of nostalgia about it. I mean, mm -hmm. 3,000 people turned out um, yeah. to see the last train go out. Eugene Ormandy and the Philadelphia Orchestra played. As a matter of fact, they played Auld Lang Syne on the train as it pulled out of the station. But there was no effort to save the station. You didn't have anybody saying, gee, this is a beautiful piece of Victorian architecture. Um, everybody was sort of like, we're sad to see it go, but it's really time for it to go. Right. We need to move on. Well, I think that was pretty healthy then, all things being considered. At the time, yes, it was. Yeah. Well, Tom, let's, let's jump back now from the Broad Street Station, go back to the beginning, I guess, with William Penn, William mm -hmm. Penn's Philadelphia. And it basically, from what your book tells us, turned out much different than the one he planned. Well, yes and no. Um, Philadelphia was probably the first 
planned city in America. So of course it was also the first city not to turn out as planned, you know, make <laughs> yeah. plans and watch yeah. God laugh. But um, actually a surprising amount of Penn's um, original plan for the city survives till today. Many people are familiar with the Thomas Home grid of the city. It was drawn in 1682, just after the city was established and circulated to European settlers. And it shows the familiar grid of streets between the two rivers with the main square in the middle and the four separate squares mm -hmm. um, in each quadrant of the city. Well, that still exists today as center city. Um, the grid planning was really the state of the art design at the time. It was designed to get away from medieval European towns with their narrow alleys and cramped houses that caused fire and disease. And Penn wanted everybody to have a good sized lot with their house set well back within the lot so that um, you wouldn't have fires. Well, although the grid survived, the house, the, the house idea did not. Um, he thought that everybody would have houses in these nice plots of land um, equally settled on both the Schuylkill and the Delaware River and then sort of moving inward. Well, everybody wanted to be on the Delaware. That's the main waterway. That's where the ships from Europe were coming in. That's where the action was. So instead of having these nicely laid out houses, you had dozens of houses, warehouses, chandleries, taverns, all crammed together in a very narrow space right along the riverfront. Meanwhile, the Schuylkill River um, was pretty much undeveloped until the 19th century. They even put up a Quaker meeting house near where um, City Hall is today. Well, they basically had to dismantle it because nobody was going to it. It was too far away from the center of population. Penn also wanted to have a nice, um, sort of a, an esplanade, sort of a nice river walk where people could stroll along the river, much like they could in London at the mm -hmm. time, and look out over, over the Delaware River. Well, again, profits came first. He wanted, every, uh, everybody wanted to have their, uh, their wharf and their pier there so they could have their ships. So again, a very cramped, crowded, mm -hmm. medieval looking landscape, not the one that Penn had planned. Interesting, but uh, is, is, it still seems infinitely better than what Washington DC ended up like. Uh, yes, that was sort of the Baroque, let's have, uh, I, I just read an article about that by Louis Mumford. Pierre Charles L'Enfant laid it out with, mm -hmm. of course, all of the major circles connecting with the large boulevards. Right. And he basically said that it was a city planned for traffic, not for people or for buildings for that matter, right. that there was very little um, space given to where people would actually live as opposed to planning these incredible vistas of gorgeous buildings that of course didn't exist. Penn's plan was very rational. And as I said, 325 years later, when you look at Center City, you see his grid with City Hall in the center and the four secondary squares still very much in place. Fascinating. Uh, let's move ahead a few years. And mm -hmm. uh, you say that after the revolution now, uh, more free African-Americans lived in Philadelphia than any other city. Mm -hmm. How did this translate into what kind of architecture was built? Um, I think one of the interesting things about um, African-Americans in Philadelphia was their desire to really build up their community. These were people who had a very rough go. They had to face a lot of racism. Um, they were very economically challenged. Uh, two men, uh, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, got together and with several other African-American leaders formed a group called the Free 
African society. And this was really a self-help book, a self-help group. Uh, they worked very hard to educate black children, um, to raise money. They um, had a burial society so that people could be buried, buried in a proper and respectful manner. Mm -hmm. And they also established churches. Both of these men worshiped at St. George Methodist, um, but they felt that African-Americans needed their own non-denominational church that really catered to their needs. Well, this got moved along when the two of them were told during a service at St. George's that they could not sit on the ground floor, that they had to go up to the balcony with other blacks. And they said, if you'll wait till after the service, we'll be glad to move. They were thrown out and they said, it's time for us to found our own church. Mm -hmm. So they mm -hmm. founded the African Church of Philadelphia, which um, was at uh, the corner of Fifth and St. James Place. It was called Adelphi Street at the time. And it was a very simple um, brick structure with marble uh, windows and, and uh, detailing. But the uh, dis description of its uh, construction is very interesting. Um, when it was first built, uh, when they had the roof raising, there was a massive dinner and you had some of the leading men in the city, including Dr. Benjamin Rush, sitting down to dinner and being served by African-American members of the church. And then when they had eaten, they stood up, the blacks sat down and the whites served them. So it was sort of this wonderful illustration of blacks and whites working together mm -hmm. to build this church. Um, the church decided to affiliate with the Episcopal church and Richard Allen still felt a very strong tie to the Methodist Church. He decided to strike out and form a Meth an African Methodist Church. Well, his first church was a blacksmith shop. There is a birch print showing this large wooden barn-like structure being pulled away from the Walnut Street Jail. That was being purchased by Richard Allen and it was moved to 6th and Lombard Streets and that became the first home of what is now Mother Bethel Church, the um, African Methodist Episcopal Church in America. And of course, if you go to that plot now, you have mm -hmm. this huge imposing Romanesque Victorian structure, but it's still on the same plot of land that Richard Allen moved that blacksmith shop to back in 1794. Interesting. So the, uh, we had the two churches and, and th those essentially probably became the, the focal points for African-American life within the city. Very much so. You had other churches, like there was a Baptist church over mm -hmm. near where the Vine Street Expressway is now, but those were two the two leading black churches for many, many years. And they both exist today in, in somewhat different forms. Right, and they're still very active with uh, membership. Very active. Uh, mm -hmm. Saint, uh, uh, it's now the African Episcopal Church of St. Thomas, and they're mm -hmm. out in Overbrook now. Right. And of course, as I said, Mother Bethel is still on the same plot. I think that's the um, single plot of land that has been owned continuously by African Americans in this country for the longest period of time. Tom, we were talking uh, before our break about the African-American church and African-American society within Philadelphia. Uh, I guess a notable uh, extension of that, what we didn't get to mention, was the abolition movement yes. and how this impacted uh, one notable structure, at least. Pennsylvania Hall, mm -hmm. uh, which was built in 1838 and um, unfortunately really represents uh, changes in relations between blacks and white in Philadelphia, very much for the worse between 1794 and 1838, after that bright beginning where blacks and whites ate together and mm -hmm. built the church together. Well, in 1837, Pennsylvania drafted a new state constitution which disenfranchised blacks. It took the vote away from African-Americans. They wouldn't regain it until after the Civil War. 
Um, it was a very, Philadelphia was a very divided city. <clears throat> it had a lot of Southern sympathies. Um, and although slavery had been abolished, there were many pro-slavery people in the city and many anti-slavery people, very divided atmosphere. Um, the abolitionist movement got together and formed the Pennsylvania Hall Association, raising funds to build this very elegant neoclassical structure on 6th Street between Race and Cherry, sort of where the WHYY Technology Center is today mm -hmm. at the end of the mall. Um, it was meant to be a center not only for the abolitionist movement in Philadelphia, but also for the women's rights movement, the Indian rights movement, um, many of the uh, children's education, many of these reforms that uh, Rush Limbaugh would probably call bleeding heart liberal causes today. But uh, at any rate, he, uh, the building was built in 1838. As I said, it was very elegant, um, had lecture halls, uh, bookstore, etc., um, cost $40,000, which was no small sum in right. those days. And it opened with a three-day conference for um, women's anti-slavery convention. And you had all of these well-known um, abolitionists who were speaking, a uh, message from John Quincy Adams opened it. Well, things were fine for the first couple of days, and then mobs began to form on the third day. And the mobs got louder and more violent. They began throwing rocks at the windows, disrupting the speakers. And finally, the hall's managers realized that they had to stop the conference or people would get hurt. Um, they called the mayor. The mayor showed up with um, troops. They asked the mayor to disperse the mob. The mayor refused. There was sort of this attitude of, look, you guys brought this on yourself. Um, they turned the keys over to the mayor, uh, who promptly turned to the mob and said, you guys all be good. I'm going home now. He went home. The mob immediately broke into Pennsylvania Hall, uh, turned the gas on, and set the place on fire. So uh, you had this beautiful building that was three days old burning. The fire department showed up and did not try to put the fire out. They wet the other houses. They hosed down mm -hmm. the neighboring houses to make sure they didn't get burned. But they let Pennsylvania Hall burn to the ground. So this really represented Philadelphia's very divided um, very tormented relationship to slavery at the time. It, to me, it doesn't sound like it was spontaneous. It sounded like a pretty well orchestrated. Uh... There were newspaper, after the second day, newspaper articles began appearing talking about how these people at Pennsylvania Hall were basically destroying the Constitution. They were taking away people's property and therefore that it would be a good idea for folks to gather. And yes, there was a lot of um, outside influence on it. Interesting. Well, let's let's move ahead uh, as, a, I guess, a good century or so. Let's talk about the Stetson Hat Company, which I, I thought was just very fascinating how you mentioned that in, in the context of a here, a, a factory becomes a subject to the, the whims, if you will, of the time. <laughs> That's right. Um, Philadelphia in the late 19th century was really one of the textile centers of the world. We made uh, uh, cloth, clothing, carpets, and of course hats. And John B. Stetson was um, our foremost hat maker. He was the person who developed the 10-gallon hat that all the big Westerners wore. But he also um, designed a lot of fedoras and homburgs and all these hats that everybody wore in the days when no gentleman appeared outside without a hat. It just wasn't done. Um, and Stetson became a multimillionaire. His hat shop expanded into this huge complex at uh, North Fifth, Germantown Avenue, Cecil B. Moore. It was sort of on mm -hmm. the lower part of North Philadelphia. 
and really became one of the a factory town within the city of Philadelphia. Most of his workers lived around the factory. As a matter of fact, Stetson uh, built housing for them that was far superior to most worker housing available in 19th century Philadelphia. He had a very paternal attitude. He had Sunday school classes. He had continuing education. He offered health insurance, uh, savings plans, all of these things that most workers wouldn't have for years. Uh, he could afford to do it. And everything went well up until the Depression, when suddenly profits were dropping mm -hmm. and he had to start cutting back on benefits. And suddenly unionization efforts started. And that really drove a wedge between the Stetson management and their workers. Um, the final nail in the coffin, of course, came in the 1960s when men stopped wearing hats outside. Uh, John, the, the, people always like to say that John Kennedy single-handedly killed um, the hat industry mm -hmm. because, of course, he would not wear a hat when he was outside. He barely wore one to his own inauguration. And after that, through the 60s and 70s, men stopped wearing hats. Stetson sort of staggered along for another decade, finally went out of business in the 70s. And um, unfortunately, its huge complex in North Philadelphia sort of diminished bit by bit over the next 10 or 15 years. Some of the buildings were demolished. A lot of them were burned by arsonists. Uh, today, there is next to nothing left of the Stetson factory, which was, as I said, this huge complex spreading over many, many blocks. Uh, the, um, the one of the last chapters is also one of the most fascinating. I just love this chapter, uh, a chapter on projected Philadelphia. You talk about what would Philadelphia turn out to look like if it uh, should turn out like it should look like. <laughs> well, how's that for twisted words there? Well, it was sort of the idea of, of you know, there were so many wonderful buildings that never got off the drawing board, either because um, the depression hit or another financial crisis or um, building technology or society changed or simply these things were too wild and wacky to get off the ground to begin with. Um, I mean, you have things like, take for instance, World Fair, World's Fairs, um, which always bring out the visionary or nutcase in every architect. Mm -hmm. um, the original design for Memorial Hall which is now being turned into the Police Touch Museum in Fairmount Park, was a European palace larger than Versailles. It was this huge domed cathedral-like building uh, that was covered with statuary. And unfortunately, they realized after they awarded first prize to it that they would bust the budget for the entire centennial just trying to build that one building. So they had to scale that back. Um, then, of course, you had things like the bicentennial, which really never took place. You had Louis Kahn, Robert Venturi, uh, Denise Scott Brown, some of the best and brightest architects who came up with this incredible design, not just to uh, put up a World's Fair, but really to redevelop the city. They would rebuild West Philadelphia, North Philadelphia, the waterfront, etc. It was great, but it would also cost $1 million per square foot. Now this was in the late 60s, and that was already pretty pricey. Right. And when the recession of the 70s hit, Basically, there was no way that it was going to happen. Nixon canceled the World's Fair in Philadelphia. Right. Well, on that, that somber note, Tom, we have to end our discussion. Uh, we, as often is the case, we've uh, with a good book, we run out of time before we run out of questions. But the book's an absolute delight, and we're really pleased to have it in the library. And we 
invite all our readers to come in and read and learn more about Forgotten Philadelphia, Lost Architecture of the Quaker City by Thomas H. Keels. I'm Carl Hallecker, and you've been watching Book Chat.